I'm Sam from Tongue. And I'm Becky from Tongue. And this is our Dead Club podcast. Um, Tongue have been together for about 15 years, uh, so we've been making music for a long time. And Tongue are Becky and myself, Mike, Ashley, Martin and Phil. Um, And Dead Club, what is Dead Club? Well, it's a project that we started um, back in 2018, which is exploring our culture and other cultures' relationship to death and dying and the idea that we need to find ways to talk about it. And this project was born in 2018, so a long time before COVID-19 was even a thing, but I guess it now feels more important than ever that we're able to have these conversations. Actually, as a result, Sam and I are recording this script on Zoom, which um, has kind of become commonplace with a lot of podcasts, but that's why it might sound a bit wonky, but then we are a bit wonky, aren't we, Sam, as a band? So in Dead Club, we interviewed lots and lots of people that we were interested in their ideas and writing and experience of death and being around death. And this interview is one I recorded with the forensic anthropologist, um, Dame Sue Black, who is president of the Royal Anthropological Institute. And she's worked on loads of high profile cases and was the lead forensic investigator to the British team in Kosovo Um, and I heard her interviewed on a program on Radio 4 and I was just fascinated and I love um, I love the thought that a woman um, is in charge doing this kind of massive important and what some might kind of understand as quite masculine work I suppose One particular song on the album that uh, was influenced by Dame Sue um, was is the song um, The Last Day of Your Life which is really a kind of fantastical m- magical realism take on having a conversation around um, what happens when you die So I went and met her at the end of 2019 and she was amazing and this is what we talked about Hopefully this is a first for you as it is for me. Okay. Um, I'm in a band called Tongue. Yep. And we had an idea that we were going to approach our next record in a slightly different way. Um, And through various conversations, we wanted to look at the subject of death. Mm -hmm. But what we wanted to do was kind of approach people and talk to them about death and, and explore just why, why it is still a taboo, considering it is the only inevitability... Um, I don't think it's a taboo. Okay, well that's interesting because <laughs> you you come from a completely yeah. different world. Yeah, I don't think so. it's a taboo at all. But I think that people, lay people, of such as myself, I think we find it really difficult to talk about it. We find it really hard when people are grieving to know what mm-hmm. to say, to how to behave, mm-hmm. and and all the rest of it. So Sam and I have been. There are six of us in the band, but so far Sam and I have been. Um, approaching people that we're interested in and I'm really interested in the work that you do 
Um, actually, you better say who you are. Okay, so I'll stop doing that now. <laughs> so um, I'm. I hate the titles, but the titles are Put there. The titles I, I hate you. them because they make me feel really old. So I'm <laughs> Professor Dame Sue Black, and I am Pro Vice Chancellor for en- Engagement at Lancaster University. Uh, but my real life is that I'm a human anatomist and a forensic anthropologist. And a forensic anthropologist, if you, t- if you take that down to its, its core words, the forensic bit means that you're an expert for the court, because it comes from the word forensis, meaning pertaining to the forum, which was the court of Rome. That's what forensic is. The anthropology is just the study of man as a species. So it's really about the identification of the human or what remains of the human for medical legal purposes. So it might be a body that's found out in the wilds, and we've got to figure out who it might have been to decide whether there was any criminal activity. It might be war crimes investigations. It might be mass fatality events that are natural disasters. All of the areas in which a human needs to be identified and the identification isn't achieved quickly through fingerprints or DNA, the usual routes, we come in when the cases are getting a little bit more challenging. Okay, so is there a difference between a forensic scientist and a forensic anthropologist? Because in lay terms, that's what we hear. The, that, that's the We're all forensic scientists, okay. um, but you have expertise within the forensic sciences. So there is no such thing as forensic science. Okay. It is just science that's used in the courtroom. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but what, within forensic science, there are forensic anthropologists, there are forensic dentists, there are fingerprint experts, there are DNA experts, entomologists, you name it, all sorts of scientists come into the, the sort of sphere of forensic science the minute their science goes into the courtroom. Okay. So can you explain a bit to me about how you went from, so I've read your book, and I've listened to loads of lectures of you talking. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, not at all. I find <laughs> it completely fascinating. Um, so you worked as a, a, a very young person in a butcher's shop. And can you tell me how you went from, you know, a potted history of how you went from that to the job that you have now? Like? So it started a little bit earlier okay. than that. So my father uh, was a great shot. My maiden name was Gunn. Yeah. My father was a great shot. I mean, it's completely ironic. Um, and I would take any opportunity to be with my father because I loved my father. I was adore my father. So when he went shooting, I would go with him. And it was for pigeons and rabbits and deer because we lived out in the middle of nowhere. And my father would take these home. They were always for the pot. But my mother was squeamish. So my mother wouldn't pluck them or skin them or gut them, and that became my job. So from a very early age, about seven, I would think nothing of skinning rabbits or or whatever. And when I was 12, my father said to me, what job are you going to get? And I thought he meant when I grew up, he meant when I was 12. Classic Scottish Presbyterianism, (laughs) you know, as soon as you can work, you should be working. And half your earnings go to your mother for board and lodging. So I developed this work ethic that said I have to work because if I don't work, my mother doesn't get the three pounds a week for board and lodging. So the obvious job was in a butcher shop. So I went from the sort of gutting and skinning to then being in a butcher shop for the entirety of my teenage years. And it felt perfectly normal to be up to my elbows and in blood and viscera and muscle and bone. Loved it. And when I went to university, I, the first two years were quite challenging because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But by the time I got to third year and there was an option to go into human anatomy and they told me that the third year was about dissection, you were given a human cadaver and your job for the entire year was to dissect from top of head to bottom of toe. And you think, you know, how, 
how was that going to take a whole year? And then the minute you start, you realise the enormity of what's inside you. And that, for me, just opened up a whole world. I, I just loved being in the anatomy department. And then it seemed a very simple step to go into a case. And it was a case, um, bearing in mind this was in the 1980s, so DNA wasn't really being used. I mean, Alec Jeffries was just about having the idea that it could be used. And a young man crashed his microlite off the east coast of Scotland. And his body was washed up a couple of weeks later. So bad decomposition. Um, he couldn't be identified facially because of, of the sort of soft tissue loss. There were no fingerprints for him to be identified because of decomposition. And so it came down to how do you tell it's him? And so we were able to tell from the remains that he was male, what sort of age he was, what sort of height he was, and all of that fitted with a missing microlite pilot. But we had some little bits of skin and we noticed that underneath his left nipple, there was a small birthmark. And so we asked his mother, did your son have a birthmark? And she said, no, my son was perfect. We thought, oh, we then asked the same question of his girlfriend. And she said, oh, yes, he had a birthmark there. <laughs> And so the girl, so on the basis of that, actually, the, the procurator fiscal was prepared to release the bodies named. Now, the girlfriend accepted it was him. The mother never did. She oh never God. accepted that was her son. Wow. And so for me, from that moment onwards, it was that realization you can use your science for real world problems yeah. that make significant impact on the people who are left behind. So it really was just a gradual one into the other. Um, I'm going to leap around a bit because something. It's not a problem. Said, okay, why do some people find dealing with blood, guts, death, um, gory? Why are people squeamish about it? Some people are, and some people aren't. Do you have any understanding I think, of why? No, I think there's the full the full spectrum. So there are people at one end of the spectrum who will faint at the sight of a, a spot of blood. Yeah. There are people at the other end of the spectrum who absolutely revel in it. And that one I find really challenging. And then there are people who sit in the middle who actually just take it as if it was perfectly normal. Yeah. I think it's human nature to have that spectrum. Mm. And everybody can place themselves somewhere in that. If you're going to be a forensic scientist and you're going to be dealing with death, the best place for you to be is in the middle. Yeah. Not somebody who's going to be squeamish, but not somebody who's got a, a slightly unnerving perhaps, you know, attraction towards a subject that kind of freaks me out a little bit, I have to say. Yeah. So best place to be, middle ground. Yeah. So most people don't think that what we do makes us middle ground, but I think we are middle ground because mm. we're, we tend not to be affected by it in the way you would be to the extremes at other ends of that spectrum. Right, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about being affected Just by Just go for it. it. Tell, um, so your first kind of, Encounters with death in terms of your own family, Uncle Willie. <laughs> Nobody knew about Uncle Willie until I wrote this book. <laughs> and he's become an absolute hero, hero bless yeah. him. I love him. <laughs> Can you tell tell I mean tell me a bit about that and, and how your kind of experience as a student learning about this stuff and then being face to face with yeah. the reality of losing somebody. So so my first you don't like that expression like No yeah. they're dead. <laughs> um so my first experience of a dead human was in the dissecting room. Yeah. So that was at the age of, I must have been 18 or 19. 
and going into the dissecting room, which was a huge open space, and there must have been about 50 glass tables or so. So there are metal tables with glass tops, and there's body, a body on each table, and each was covered with a white sheet. So you walk into the room, and all you see are these white mounds, about 50 of them, and you know that underneath it, there is a body. Are they clipped on at all? They're just on the No, table? no, no, they're no. just lying okay. on the table. They're very heavy things, yeah. dead bodies, okay. especially when they've been embalmed, because they're full of fluid. Mm. Um, and you know what's underneath the mounds, and you get taken to this is your table and because of the course we were doing there were two of us to dissect one body so one on one side one on the other and then when there were bits in the middle we worked together and so it was that horrible moment of thinking okay pull it back so you pull back the sheet and you think okay I can handle that that's okay because the body doesn't quite look real Mm. and by that I mean when the bodies are embalmed with formalin they go a slightly sort of brownish grey colour. A bit like, I'm sorry to do this because this might put everybody off, but it looks a bit like tuna fish in a can, <laughs> yeah. okay? And and we used to we used to be very naughty um, when we were teaching the dissecting room, especially if we had uh, the ambulance in. So if you had ambulance drivers in and we were talking through anatomy, right the way throughout the session, we'd keep talking about the fact that it looked like tuna fish because we always had an agreement with their kitchen when they went back that evening that supper would be tuna salad. (laughs) And we used to get a note of the numbers that refused to eat. (laughs) Terrible, absolutely terrible. Anyhow, um, so it's it's that sort of greyish, brownish sort of colour. So it doesn't quite look real. Um, And also the head shaved because the hair will eventually okay. fall out, so it's easier to actually shave. So so there is this sort of distance from it almost being real, but you know that you have to get a blade onto the end of your scalpel and you have to be able to start cutting through human flesh. Mm. Now, where we start is on the front of the chest, and if you feel on the front of your chest, there's a bone right underneath there, which is your yeah. breastbone, your sternum. And that's why everybody starts dissection there, because you can't cut too deeply. You only can go down as far as the bone. And so it gives you that confidence really in that first cut. You know, the classic line of the song, the first cut is the deepest. You know, we make sure that it isn't. Mm. We make sure that the first cut is actually very superficial. And once you've done that and you start to peel back human skin and you start to see the muscle and you start to see the fat and the blood vessels, you forget that you're working on a dead body because it just becomes such a fascinating world to see what's next. When I peel back the next bit of muscle, what's underneath there? When I take this bone out of it, what is that? Is that what it looks like? You know, where does it connect to? And before you're aware of it, you're no longer afraid, you're no longer nervous, you're absolutely engrossed in what is the wonder Mm. of the human body. And, And so for me, it was just this marvelous opening and you know once once you've been once you've dissected you then often go into a teaching job and of course I went into a teaching job here in London at St Thomas's and so you teach other people how to dissect so you get used to being surrounded by bodies whether it's in the dissecting room or in the mortuary or wherever it may be but these are all strangers yeah and there is that detachment because it is a stranger and so the first person dead that I knew in terms of really, really knowing was my Uncle Willie. And because I'd been a lecturer um, for a couple of years by that point when he died, um, my father, who's ex-regimental sergeant major, his command to me was go and check he's OK. And I didn't quite 
know what my father meant, check he's okay. So I did. Uh, I went to check that he was properly embalmed, that he was properly dressed, that he had his teeth in, that no one had stolen his organs. You know, I went into into a total sort of professional mode. But there was a Rubicon there because when I went into the room, I could feel the nerves again because this was somebody I knew dead. But I almost didn't recognise him. And, and by that, what I mean is there is something happens at death that what is left behind is not the person who was there a moment before. He looked so much smaller. He looked so much different. There was no doubt it was him, but he wasn't the same person. Mm. And that moment of realising the difference meant that I lost I lost any fear. There was no fear then of dead bodies, whether they were family or or stranger. And, and I lost it at that point. Wow, that's amazing. And I always thanked him for it because he allowed me to do that. He allowed me not to be afraid. So when my mother died, when uh, my father died, I had therefore no fear of what was left behind. And I could convey to my children when they, they saw their grandparents dead that there was nothing for them to be afraid of. So they have now gone into adulthood without the fears that perhaps I had when I was an, an adult, young yeah. adult. I read, I think, that you said it's important for people to be comfortable with death. Mm. And I think you said that you had brought your children into the dissecting room. I mean, what can we do when if we don't have access to that kind of Oh, world? for me, it was selfish. It was slave labour was what it was about. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I had jobs in my department that needed to be done. Right, OK. And they had school holidays <laughs> okay. and they were do- not doing anything. So I handed them over to the technicians and said, here, you know, mm. use them, feel free. <laughs> um, so they learned very quickly that the dissecting room was a very different place. Mm. They learnt about the bodies. They learnt about... Uh, one of my daughters learnt about how to take a biopsy from a kidney. You know, the other oh. one learnt um, how to undress a body. You know, all sorts of things that they wouldn't normally have access to. And was there any resistance from None them? at all. None at okay. all. Because by that point, they knew what I did. And for them, if mum did it, it was going to be okay. Mum wasn't going to put them in a position where, um, you know, they were going to be in any form of danger or trauma. So there was a complete trust that this was a perfectly normal thing to do. Mm. So that when uh, their grandmother died, because when my mother died, she was the first one that they saw. um, When I took them into the funeral home, there was no fear. So they were straight up to the casket, holding her hand, stroking her head, wow. just just nothing, no fear at all. And for me, that was a real moment that said, these are young women who will have the confidence to do anything. Mm. And so my youngest daughter, who's now a lawyer, um, she has no fear about going into a mortuary if, you know, if she's working with police. Um, my middle daughter is a palliative care nurse now and so she sees it every day and she said mom it's it's the biggest privilege to be able to sit with someone who hasn't got family and hold their hand till they die Mm. and you think isn't that the kind of nurse that you want and my oldest daughter um, does physiotherapy work with um, sports injuries and so again you know she she manipulates the human body Mm. and has come into my dissecting room to learn it she said mom I don't quite understand this group of muscles can I come in and have a look Mm. and so that's what she would do is just come in and go oh now I understand why if I move this that happens and for her it was just you know it was a, a brilliant textbook but in three dimensions so how do we who don't have access to your world become you know how can we become less afraid of death more comfortable with it I think it starts with talking I really do think it starts with talking and it starts talking 
starts about talking with the older generations because as you get closer to your own hole in the ground I think you become more comfortable about talking about end of life and for some people they don't want to raise the subject in case it upsets granny but you know maybe granny's waiting for that conversation to be had and when you look at the Victorians in particular, the Victorians were in love with death. I mean, they really created an art form out of death. Mm. And probably since about the 60s, I would say, we fell out of love with death. And it became something that we almost had to hurry up and take the body away. Nobody must see it. Nobody must handle it. Nobody must touch it. Take it away till the funeral and then we'll bury it. And it became an, an it rather than an extension of granny or mum mm. or sister or whatever it may be. So I think we, we've fallen out of love with death and we've fallen out of understanding our relationship with, with her because she is a her for me, death. Mm. Um, and the reason we, I think we've fallen out of love is we've stopped understanding her or trying to understand her. Whereas in generations past, it was as much a part of normal life as childbirth because it's the other end. Yeah. But it suddenly became that thing that, you know, maybe maybe it's not very nice, so maybe we shouldn't confront it. But it's amazing the number of people, when you do start talking about it, are quite happy to tell you what they think or to ask the questions yeah. or to go into the conversation about it. Mm. Because it's not really a taboo if other people start the conversation. It right. flows. Yeah. People just don't know how to start the conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Um, I've cooled down a bit now as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you how do you separate from emotion and grief? I mean, obviously, you're working with um, cadavers or bodies or remains of people that you haven't known. Um, but how how do you not? Um, I mean, how do you separate the death? from the grief experience. okay so so some sometimes it is somebody we know that we're dissecting right okay because in the anatomy department people will come into the anatomy department oh, yeah. to say i'm going to donate my body you know and they want to talk to you about it and have a cup of coffee with you um and they may live a long life after that or it might be a short time and they're then in our department mm. and so we know them alive and dead and we take the responsibility for them for their family as well so so there is a there is a bond that, that can develop with, with some individuals, um, ones that you get to know particularly well, who keep reminding you that they're still alive, <laughs> you know, in case you'd forgotten about them. But there is a tremendous amount of, of humour in something like an anatomy department. Not, not a cruel humour, but almost an acceptance of, you know, life is something that is very transitory. It is going to end. Mm. And so therefore, there's no point in worrying about it. There's no point in getting angry about it. You just have to go with it. And some of the funniest conversations you have are in anatomy departments. And that makes it easy to cope. I mean, my, my PA was also the bequeathal secretary. And I would hear her on the phone to families at the time of their you know deepest grief. And through the conversation, you'd eventually hear her have a little laugh with them. It'll have been something about their mum or their dad or, or whatever it was, you know, a little, a little foible of some kind. Mm. But the minute you can laugh with somebody, you form a bond. Yeah. And, and it's laughing and smiling that makes that bond. It's not being aggressive. It's not 
standoffishness. You know, mm. it is la- laughter is the biggest thing that breaks down barriers. So we know that's important. And in our department, um, we were always proud that for a number of years, out of the university, the anatomy department was the happiest place in the university to work. Doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't. And, no. you know, so it should be. So so there is a lot of, of a lot of love. There is a lot of laughter. Yes, there's sadness because you're dealing with families when they've just lost mum or dad and they're very, very upset about it. As you should be, mm. you should be upset. Yeah. Because if you're upset, it means the person mattered to you. Yeah. If you're not upset, well, you know, people do it. Of course, they handle things in different ways, but people get embarrassed about crying or breaking down. And the first thing we say is, "Don't be embarrassed about it. Shows you care." Yeah. You know, that's really important. So we manage grief, I think, in in different ways. Mm. When it comes to our own grief, then in terms of our own grief. We have a really strong community. So when I lost my father, my entire department, you know, you, you come around each other because we all understand it, but we can talk about it in a very matter-of-fact way, which I think helps. Mm. When you work on a case, and maybe you work on a case that is particularly emotive, so maybe it's child deaths, mm. maybe it's torture, maybe it's mass fatality events, the question is how do you separate what is the horror of what you're perhaps experiencing from trying to go on with a normal life. And I had um, a very dear friend who was head of CID in Northern Constabulary in Scotland. And I went to Charlie Hepburn at one point and said, look, Charlie, I'm going to do these cases. What's your advice? And he said, well, my advice is don't do them. Because he said, once these things are inside your head, You will never lose them. But he said, I know you're not going to listen to me anyway. I know you'll do it. So he said, let me give you a piece of advice. And it was was the best piece of advice I've ever had. He said, don't own the guilt because you didn't cause it. You're not responsible for it. It's not your job to find somebody guilty or innocent. The only thing you have to do is find the evidence, recover the evidence, analyse the evidence and present the evidence. Mm. Don't let it get in because if you let it get in, you're not being an impartial scientist. And what the case needs is an impartial scientist who will look at the evidence solely on its own merit. And I found that really helpful because it allowed me to be detached. It gave me permission to be detached from what was going on around me. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't think what we're looking at is is horrendous Mm. and sometimes just truly awful. But I couldn't have stopped it. And I couldn't have done anything about it. So I just have to do my job. And that gives me a level of clinical detachment that I don't think makes me cold, but makes me realistic about what I'm best, where where my talents are best placed. Mm. And it's not in in crying and getting angry and, you know, having a, a huge amount of grief over a particular event. It's about just doing my job. Yeah. Does it, does it, do you not? Does it not make you fearful to kind of be exposed to um, for your the people that you love? You know, to just sort of because I I feel very very afraid of of awful things happening. I mean, I'm not saying that you don't. I imagine you do as well. You know, I've got a four year old, mm-hmm. and I can't bear to watch the news sometimes because I can't I can't bear to hear people having conversations about children with cancer. You know, it just terrifies me. So I hide away from it, and I wonder what it's like to have. As your work, because I know you've moved into um, 
working child sexual abuse child sexual so it's paedophilia yeah. and child sexual yeah. abuse yeah um see i i can't even say it you know so i i, I wonder how it is that you because i read in your book you're talking about compartmentalizing stuff and i wonder is that how you is that the device you use to when i have to mm. so i i think the the desensitization that i've had from the rabbits to the butcher shop to the anatomy department to forensic i think that's helped mm. i do think because i've i spent my entire career in death so there's there's little can shock me now yeah there's no doubt that every case you go into you take the deep breath i my, my team was usually usually all female so we usually say time to pull up the big girl pants right up to your chin uh you know be brave about this in you go you know you you might literally be in a fatal fire in a very small room and you know as you're trying to recover what's left of fingers of somebody in a fatal fire your face is right up against the face of of the deceased person you know and the first time you do that you think this is this is a bit odd but the second time you do it, you don't think about it. Right. You know, so, so the desensitization is important. But there are things that are challenging and the, the paedophile work in particular is challenging. And we have to watch these videos. We have to look at these photographs and you almost have to do it as if it's not you. Mm. So it, it's like having a clinical box inside my head and I go into it and it's safe in there because my world's outside. Okay. And the clinical things that I have to do are inside that box. And when I've finished it, that, that case for that day, I will come out of that box and I'll close the door. My fear is that I don't close the door properly one day and you get a bleeding from one world into the other. And that's what people relate as post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, I'm not sufficiently arrogant or naive to think that it won't come my way because I've worked with some very, very experienced forensic personnel who you would never expect to have uh, post-traumatic stress. And they have yeah. very, very badly. And so it's a wake-up call that says, yeah, it could happen at any point, mm. but it's being aware of it. And it's being aware of never never working alone, always working in a team, yeah. because it means that somebody else is also watching you at the same time as you're watching yourself. Okay, And, and I think that, that leads to a, a stronger mental and physical health mm. um, <clears throat> I was going to ask you a question about um, Kosovo mm -hmm. and um, perhaps for the purposes of this um, it's worth just explaining a bit about what you were doing there mm -hmm. I mean it might be obvious and then I've got a particular question no I problem so I, I got a phone call um, from Peter Vanessas who was the forensic pathologist working out in Kosovo um, at the time just after the Serbs had started to retreat the uh, K4 which was the the UN troops Kosovo force um, started to enter into the country and as they entered into the country it became clear that there had been indiscriminate kill killings all over the country, so that you had bodies at the side of the road, in gardens, in houses, just literally everywhere. So Louise Arbour, who was the chief prosecutor for the, the International Criminal Tribunal at the time, asked for gratis teams from various UN countries to come in and help with the evidence recovery process. And the British forensic team was one of the first to go in. So Peter Vanessas, as the pathologist, was out there and he, he had one particular scene which is the first one that he came to, and he said, I, c I can't do this, but I know who can. And so he phoned me and he said, would you be prepared to come out to Kosovo because we need your skills for body recovery and identification? 
And I don't think I had any idea in reality of what that meant, Mm. because up to that point, I'd worked on one body at a time. Um, And so going out to Kosovo, to a country that was still war ravaged, that had um, the refugees starting to come back into the country, having no supply lines, having no electricity, no running water. I mean, it really was a challenging environment to operate anyway. In security terms, we still had snipers in the hills. We had improvised explosive devices laid for us around a number of the places. So there really were security issues. And then the first crime scene that we were at, which was probably the only, probably the only virgin crime scene in Kosovo, because the refugees hadn't really started to come back by the time we moved in and it was an outhouse and an outhouse where 44 men had been taken off the refugee train and taken to this outhouse and separated into two rooms and a gunman stood at the door of each of the rooms sprayed the rooms with with kalashnikov fire killed everybody except one he'd managed to get into the corner and so he'd been saved by all of his family friends and everyone in front of him who had effectively shielded him from the bullets not on purpose but just the way it happened then the serbian troops threw in straw threw in petrol torched the building so he had to lie underneath the dead burning bodies of all the people he knew he knew he couldn't come out if he did he knew he'd be shot and he was a really important witness. The The building was torched. The roof fell in, so buried underneath the tiles. And so we came in about a year afterwards, 38 degree heat. So you can imagine the bodies are liquid. They are boiling masses of maggots. Oh, um, they're all piled on top of each other. They're partly burnt. They're partly submerged under roof tiles. And the the dogs very quickly reverted back to feral packs And so this was a food source Mm -hmm. for them. So the bodies were partly dismembered and partly scattered as well. So it was, you know, on with the the white Teletubby suit that nobody looks sexy in um, (laughs) and the knee pads and starting at the door of of each room, walking, well, crawling forward inch by inch till you find the first bit of a body, being able to clear away all the tiles, being able to clear away all the, the rubble but also being aware of artefacts. So are there bullets? Are there jackets from the bullets? Are there uh, pieces of personal evidence? So maybe documents, maybe passports, maybe jewellery, those sorts of things. Recovering all of that evidence. Then when you find the first body or what's left of it, being able to go around the edges to find where's the top of it, where's the bottom, where's the sides. But bearing in mind because they're so badly decomposed and they're piled one on top of each other, any isolated bones fall through. So you might not find all of that person until you've recovered the four people that are lying, you know, that have been lying below them. And so it was very much a a human jigsaw puzzle of being able to take people out bit by bit. And the job was going to be to identify um, where we could the individuals, but we knew that was going to be a challenge because DNA in terms of laboratories was going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to come back. And so what we would often have would be a tattered piece of burnt clothing. And a wife would come along and say, that's my husband's shirt. I know it's my husband's shirt because I sewed that button on with that thread. He only had one shirt. And so you'd start to get tentative identifications from jewellery, documents or or clothing. But our, our real purpose, whilst identification was important, our real purpose was about collecting the evidence to say, does this support 
or otherwise what the survivor said. Because this is an indictment site yeah. that says there's a witness who says a man stood at the door and did this. What does the evidence say? Mm. And the evidence says, yes, that's exactly what happened. The room was splay- sprayed with Kalashnikov fire. We've got bullets everywhere. We've got casings everywhere. We've got bullets that if we dig into the plaster and the wall, we can take them out of there. Mm. There are no guns found on the individual. So this isn't a combat zone. We've not got two parties fighting against each other. So the chances are these are civilians. Are they all male or female? Well, they're all male. So that means they were selected from the refugee train that was heading down towards Albania. What ages are they? They were all, uh, the youngest was 14 and the oldest was in his 80s. So these are not normal combatants. So therefore it supports the um, charge of genocide. Mm. This is about wiping out an entire population. So our evidence is, is there to support or otherwise what the witness is saying and then how that's going to fit into the charges within the courtroom. If we can get to an identification, that's a bonus. But it is a humanitarian bonus because Mm -hmm. it is about giving the bodies back to families, and it's about families being able to prove my husband was killed, my husband's brother was killed, there is now nobody who can support the family, and so they can apply for financial assistance. So the the particular thing I wanted wanted to ask you to talk about was... um, there's a detail that I found very moving where you um, describe um, the revelation of a particular body of a two-year-old and you look up and see that somebody is being shielded. Yeah. Can you describe that? Yeah. So, so some of the sites where we had to go um, were really inaccessible and we would have to drive miles and then there was no road, so you'd have to walk for another however many miles to a site, and one in particular where they had separated the women and the old folk and the children from the men. The men had been taken off elsewhere and and probably shot in a mass grave. And the troops had separated the children from the adults, and they'd taken the children to the other end of, of this field. And it was a field that I think had wheat growing in it, as I remember. And what they they did was they said to the mothers, now, call for your children. And so the mothers called for the children. So the children were running through the field and the troops were using them as target practice so that the mothers and the old people were watching their children being picked off one by one. And then they were all killed. Mm. So so that kind of a scenario, that is not a normal war combat zone. And that becomes important when you're going to charge somebody Mm. with war crimes. So we were literally out in the middle of nowhere in this mass pit um, where I don't know how many bodies there would have been, but it would have been upwards of 40 anyway. And I can remember we had to do the postmortems literally in the field because we couldn't transport the bodies out. It was impossible to carry them out. It was so far. And um, one of the the bodies I had in front of me was a little girl, I think it was. And she was uh, about two, I would say. And she was still in her little sleep suit and her little red wellies. And, you know, you have to undress her to be able to say what are the injuries, how might she have died. And I suddenly became aware that that something had changed in the environment around me. Mm. And you're so absorbed and focused on what you're doing that it, it kind of creeps into the side of your psyche. And I sort of looked up and I thought, there's a row of black police wellies in front of me. I, I don't understand what's going on. And I looked up and I thought, why are these policemen all standing in a row all facing me and and you know you you just sort of couldn't compute and then what I realized had happened 
was that they were shielding a member of their team. So one of the, the members of our team had done the unforgivable. They had looked at this body of this little girl and they'd superimposed their own daughter's face on it and they'd, they'd lost it. And that's what we tried desperately not to do yeah. is to make it personal. And because he was finding it really hard to watch this post-mortem, thinking that could be my daughter, the way the men on the team had thought this is the way to protect him is to shield him from it and let him have his grief. And to me, that's that's not the way to do it. When I realised what was happening, I stood up, off came the gloves, down came the Teletubby suit, you know, wrapped around the middle. You walk around the policeman and you throw your arms around him and you let him sob his heart out because he needs to get it out. Yeah. If he doesn't get it out, it'll come back and haunt him again. Yeah. And he needed to absolutely purge it and to talk about how he felt and why he knew he'd done a mistake and just get it out. Yeah. And we try not to get into that position. Mm. But every now and again, you know, we're on the human too. Yeah. And the most important thing we can do in that sort of situation is be a part of a team. Nobody gets judged. Nobody's judged for the way they react to something mm. because we all know it might be us tomorrow. Yeah. And all we ask for is kindness, compassion, space if we want it. But if we don't want space, then somebody who can talk to you. And I find it really, really easy in the team to adopt the mother role because you're a middle-aged woman, you know, with your own kids, you're going to take no nonsense from anybody and you can tell them when they've had enough drink, you know, go to bed because you've got to work in the morning and you can do the sort of press the mommy buttons, but you can also talk to them about the fact they're missing their wife, they're missing their kids, how hard they're finding this, how are they going to go back to their own job? And I find that role helps me to become a part of the team as well. Yeah. Um, I was really moved by the warmth that comes from your writing. Thank you. There's, um, I mean, I was actually, <laughs> I'm quite an emotional person, as can you tell. can probably I see. I can tell, um, and that's okay. But I was actually moved by the dedication in the front page <laughs> of it <laughs> to your family. And, um, you know, you talk about being proud of the people mm. that you work with. And I wondered if it was something about your your work that made you feel able to be so in touch with that warmth, that compassion? Oh, I don't know. Um, I've never... I've never believed I'm better than anybody else. I've never believed that anybody else is better than anybody else. Mm. My mother and father always taught me everybody puts their pants on in the morning. <laughs> Okay. Uh, even the queen puts her pants on in the morning. We're all the same. Mm. And and I can I can remember my par my parents never made any difference whether they were talking, you know, to to somebody who, you know, we would consider is at a low end of a spectrum to someone who's at a high end of a spectrum, whatever that spectrum may be. I can remember my parents always being the same to everybody. Mm. And that was a great way to grow up. Yeah. But my father was a classic Presbyterian Scot in that although I adored him and I know he adored me, he couldn't show it. So I don't remember my father ever holding my hand. I don't remember him ever hugging me, initiating a hug. He just didn't do it. He was a, you know, a Scotsman of his time. 
My mother was the other extreme. My mother, you know, you played Vera Lynn's White Close of Dover and my mother was just a puddle in the middle of the room. That's me. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I had, I had a father who was at one extreme and I had a mother at the other extreme and I kind of had to find middle ground. Mm. And I always vowed that my children needed to know that they were the most important things in the world and that I would die for them with absolutely not a, a, a heartbeat's hesitation. I would die for any one of them, whatever it was that was required. Mm. And I've known my husband since we were in school. So we're kind of long term. You know, we've been around together for a very, very long time. And he was my very best friend long before he was anything more. So I married my best friend, which sounds so schmaltzy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't get any better than that. And it was funny when I when I moved to Lancaster um, after 15 years in Dundee and my husband's still in Scotland and I'm in Lancaster and our youngest daughter, who's now 22, took me aside, which I thought was just wonderful. And she said to me, Mum, do you think you and Dad will be OK? <laughs> and I just thought, oh, bless your heart that you would think about it, you Aww. know. And I said, well, first of all, you know, I've spent this amount of time getting him the way I want him. So first, of all, nobody else would have him now. <laughs> and I'm not going to let him go because I've invested far too much in him. And frankly, I've known him since I was 17. Mm. Do you know, why would you change that? There, I, I, I really fell on my feet in that I married my best friend. Mm. And so why would I not tell them how much they matter, how much they care? I care about them because I, I do. My father couldn't do it. My mother was overload. And I felt I needed to be sort of somewhere in the middle. And because I went away quite a lot um, when the girls were young, because I was working on cases, my husband, what he would do is he would sort of downscale his own workload. And so he got a really close relationship with his daughters that I don't think many fathers get the chance to do. Mm. And so now what they will do, the little minx, is that they'll go to their father first <laughs> and they'll wind daddy round their little finger and get daddy on side before they come to mommy and try and persuade mommy <laughs> rather than it happening the other way around, which I think is brilliant. I, I think girls and their fathers, I've always said, you know, when we get old, they will look after their father and they will put me in a care home. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> girls and their daddies. Oh, dear. Um, OK, I've only got a couple more things to ask it's you. It's my pleasure. Um, so my friend Sam has interviewed Bronnie Ware as part of this project. I don't know if you've come no, across her. So she's an Australian, and she was a palliative care nurse. Okay. And she's written a book called Five Regrets of the Dying. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I haven't read the book, but I listened to the interview, and one of the things that I was really struck by was that she said in her experience she felt like people who had some faith or even some idea of something beyond mm -hmm. this life when you die left it in a more kind of peaceful comfortable okay. way and I just wanted to ask you what you thought about that idea so um I was I think very fortunate uh, to be with my father when he died um my grandmother had said to me when I was a young girl be there for him for whatever she meant by that at the time I think she knew he would probably be afraid when the time came, my father had very far advanced Alzheimer's by the time he died. Um, he'd been immobile for about a year. He'd been non-communicative for about a year. And on the nights when the nur nurses know when, when someone's time's coming and he stopped eating, he stopped 
drinking. So we knew that there was a finite amount of time. And um, I, we all visited him that night, that evening. And as I was leaving, I'd said to him, now, Dad, I'm going home now, but I'll be back in the morning. And this was a man who had not communicated with us in a year. And a f- I can only describe it as a fear that came across his face. And I was really taken aback by it. And my oldest daughter saw it and she said, Mom, you're not going anywhere. I said, you're absolutely right, I'm not. And it, my grandmother's words came back in, you know, you need to be with him. She knew he didn't want to be on his own mm. when that happened. So I said to him, right, I'm leaving everyone here. I'm going home for a shower and then I'll come back and I'll stay and everybody else will go. As it was, my oldest daughter stayed with me. And it was that classic thing of, you know, the, the darkest hours of the morning. So between three and four o'clock in the morning, mm. um, his breathing started to change. It started to get very shallow. And then I could start to hear the liquid in his lungs, which people talk about as a death rattle, but it's just liquid in the lungs. So I knew that air wasn't getting into his lungs. I knew that hypoxia was setting in. So he was he was unconscious in probably no time at all. And then he took his last breath. And, you know, we sat with him throughout it. We talked to him because I firmly believe your hearing is probably one of the last senses to go. So you talk to people right till the last minute. Um, And we did that. We held his hand. We told him how much he mattered. And then when he died, he was gone. What was left behind? I would nothing would have persuaded me to leave my father whilst there was still breathing ongoing. But once his breathing stopped, then his heart would stop, and I knew that then he was dead. And once he was dead, I had no trouble leaving him because what was left behind was not my father. It was just the vehicle that he'd occupied whilst he'd been alive. Now, do I believe he goes on to something else? No, I don't. But the superstition in me is my grandmother taught me you open the window. So you open the window and you let their soul fly. I don't believe in it, but it's superstition. I've spent my life around the dead. None of them have ever come back to me. Mm. None of them have ever scared the living daylights out of me. The living terrify me, the dead don't. (laughs) They don't move. They don't sit up and groan at you. There is nothing beyond that point that I have any evidence that says you come back from it or you're aware of it. So for me, it's about now. It's about living. It's not about waiting for something that's going to come. What a waste of a life Mm. if what you're worrying about is what's going to come at the other end and where you're going to go. Because I firmly believe the light switches off. I don't remember anything before I got here. Why on earth should I remember anything when I'm gone? But what I love is the idea that when I die, and if if I live long enough then to a point where my organs are no use to anyone. Up until then, harvest anything, anything you want from this that you can give to somebody else to help them live longer. Feel free, take it. Once you get to a certain point, though, they are probably beyond anybody else using. Although I don't live too badly, I have to say. I'm not a drinker or a smoker. Um, But I will donate my body. So I want my body to be dissected. I want other people to learn. The, the control freak in me actually wants to do the dissection. I'd love to know what I look like inside, love to, but I'm not going to do that. So I want them to dissect me. Then what I want them to do is collect together all the fat and the muscle and everything else, and that can be cremated, and that will just simply go off. There'll be no ash because the ash actually comes from the bone. It doesn't come from the soft tissue. And then I want them to collect together my bones. I want them to boil them because you've got to get all the fat out of them. And then I want them to restring me 
as, a, as an articulated skeleton. And then I can stand in my dissecting room and teach for the rest of my death. So I carry on teaching long before, you know, long after I've died, right the way into, you know, because bones will be there for hundreds of years. Isn't that fantastic? And then the extra thing that my children said to me was, well, mum, we could come visit you. I thought, <laughs> of course they can. You know, because normally when you visit your dead parent, it's to a graveside. Actually, if I can become an articulated skeleton, they can come and visit me in the dissecting room. Mm. And I know that they would get a bit of a kick out of that. That's amazing. You've, I've heard you talk about not being afraid of death and, no. about, and about your own death and about wanting to know what it feels like. And yeah. Can you just say so I, I, I'm a, Nobody wants a death that's painful. Mm. Nobody wants a death that is undignified. Nobody does. Um, I would, I'm a control freak and I would like to have a pill that says when I'm ready, when I've had enough, I can take that pill mm. and I will have all of my affairs in order and I will go out with a minimum amount of fuss. In this country at this time, we can't do that. What I don't, I won't prescribe to is paying somebody a tremendous amount of money to travel to somewhere like Switzerland to do it. I just, I won't. I don't think death tourism is really the right way forward. I think we have to become a much more mature society in talking about our rights to exit our life. If we have a right to life, I think we have a right to death and we have a right to choose, providing we're compass mentis. So I absolutely understand why we have to put safeguards in place mm. to make sure that that's not abused. And there are sectors of society where people feel it would be abused. You know, let's get rid of granny, uh, who's becoming a bit of a drain on the finances or, you know, foiling our lifestyle, whatever it may be. No, that's not acceptable. Mm. But when you are somebody who is of sound mind and doesn't want to go forward anymore. The only things open to you are an overdose, opening your, your, your veins, stepping in front of a train, jumping off a, a, a bridge. That No, that's no way to die. And somebody's got to scrape you up. Mm. You know, that that's just doesn't seem fair. We have to get to a mature point, I think, as a society to say, OK, you know, now it's my choice. I've had enough. And I want to be able to choose that. But I, want, I don't want to be medicalised. So I don't want to have the, the you know, the, the um, uh, it's gone straight out of my head, the, um, the substance you take that uh, anaesthetises you. Oh, God, what am I talking about? Morphine. Morphine, thank you. <laughs> it's completely gone out of my head. So I don't want the morphine pump. Mm. That means effectively I'm, I'm in a coma and unaware of it. I want to know what it feels like. It's a once in a lifetime experience. You're only ever going to do it once. Yeah. You know, so I want to know this is what it feels like. This is what it sounds like, what it tastes like. You know, I want to know, I want to feel that shutting down to know that it's the end of a life. I'm not afraid of that at all, never have been. Um, but selfishly, I do want to experience it. Wow. Okay, last question is, I mean, we've, t we've touched on this a bit, but what does your culture, and by that I mean whatever you see as your own culture, um, being British, being Scottish, um, being a Westerner, I suppose, what do you think your culture does well in relation to death and what could it do better? I don't think we do anything terribly well okay. um, about death, is the truth. Um, in the past where, you know, when Granny died, and she was in a coffin in your front sitting room 
then I think we were in touch with death. Mm. And then I think we did it well. Um, the Victorians, I think, did death spectacularly, maybe perhaps a little bit too spectacularly. Um, but we have, we don't have a comfort in talking about death and dying, almost as if we're afraid that if we do, it's going to encourage it to come a little bit quicker. So best to pretend that it's not there at all. I think there is a real, there's a real enlightenment happens when you accept that you have a finite time and therefore you live every day for what you do in that day and you get to the end of the day and you count your blessings for what has happened in that day because there might not be a tomorrow mm. and there are enough people who have the, the terminal diagnoses to know that they have that finite time and when you speak to them uh, so you know I've, I've got a very dear friend Fee who, who has been diagnosed with terminal cancer and she said it's the best thing that happened to me because I now know what living means I wasn't living before. I was going from day to day and planning a month ahead and planning a year ahead. Now I don't. Today I do what I'm doing. She said it's the best thing that could have happened to me in a perverse way, mm. but really is. And I think we don't do death well at all. I think we put it away. We're afraid of it. We shun it. And as a result of that, I think it's unhealthy. Mm. Other cultures do it much better. Yeah. Okay, that's it. <laughs> okay. Thank you so did much. Did that give you what you wanted? It did, yeah. Oh, so good. I'm glad. To talk to you. Hi, my name is Ashley. I play guitar and sing with the band Tongue. Um, Becky asked me to record a little note or a memory. Um, so. I had quite an unusual experience recently, unusual for me at least. Um, when it comes to anything religious or spiritual or the paranormal, um, I'm usually pretty scathing about it. Um, I feel like there's a rational explanation for all of these things and science has an answer for pretty much everything. Um, my uncle had recently had a heart attack. It was pretty severe and he looked like he wouldn't, wouldn't be recovering. Um, Covid thing had just kicked off and we'd all been told we weren't allowed to go anywhere um, so going to see him just wasn't an option. Um, it was a real shock and a shame and he was such a lovely person. Every memory I have of him he's either smiling or laughing or just being kind. Um, a few days later I got a message saying that he had passed away in the night which um, I was pretty stunned and not entirely surprised because he'd been in such a bad way. Um, there was talk of a funeral, but as we weren't supposed to be going anywhere, it, it sort of all felt a bit desperate and hopeless. Um, I went to sit outside to kind of think it all over. Um, oddly, the weather was amazing. This was early April, um, but it was like a hot summer's day. Um, really warm and still. Um, I think it must have been about 25 degrees. Very peaceful. Um, and a butterfly fluttered over and settled down just near me. Um, and I got this overwhelming feeling that it was my uncle. Um, totally out of character for me. Um, 
really unusual, but it was very, very real, very, very powerful. Um, I said, sorry that you've gone and thank you for coming to see me. And uh, he fluttered around a bit. Um, I had a little cry uh, and a smile. Um, eventually he fluttered off and I said goodbye. Um, I know this was all just my mind's way of working out and dealing with the awful situation, um, but it was very, very real. I guess I can understand how people feel like they've been visited by ghosts or um, had religious figures come down to speak with them or you know, things like that. Um, I do still think it's a load of old nonsense, but I'm glad I got to say goodbye. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Coming up in this series are interviews with Darren Brown, Kevin Young, AC Grayling, Catherine Mannix, Alanda Botton and Speech to Bell. And if you missed it, Max Porter was interviewed in the first episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dead Club podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.